It's a remarkable thing for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ to talk to somebody who has heard the same information that we have and even largely believes it or at least acknowledges that it's a good thing and yet delays their response. I've met a lot of people like this, especially since I've become a senior pastor. When you talk to people about the gospel or about the church, and they will tell you things like, I'm so glad this church is here, or I can't stand that people are blasting the gospel and the Bible and the church in the news. It makes me so angry. Or, you know, I, I'm so glad that my kid gets to go to your church or to go to your youth group or whatever it may be. And you talk to them and they say, well, it's not, it's not for me. I know I, I probably should put my faith in Jesus. I probably should get around to getting saved. But, you know, that, my, that day will come. I'll, I'll, my day will come. And we don't understand that because we remember the desperation that we felt when we came to Jesus and we knew that we were lost and we knew that Jesus offered us everything that we could ever hope for, forgiveness and love and joy. But there are so many that do that. And their plan that we're going to focus on tonight is I'm going to live my life first. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to party. I'm going to enjoy my life. And then when I've had my fun, I've had my fill, then I'll, I'll settle down and I'll, I'll finally come to Jesus and I'll st finally start coming back to church. These are people that are not antagonistic to the gospel. They're not hateful to the church. In fact, they might even get angry and defend it in a non-Christian way, which is always hilarious to me. But they say, not yet for me. Kind of like Felix in the book of Acts. He said, when I have a good opportunity, then I'll call for you. And some of this goes back to, you maybe have heard this, there's a psychological idea that came about, or didn't come about, it was identified in the 80s and has recently become a, a hot topic because it's so relevant for our time and it's called the fear of missing out. Have you ever heard of that? They call it FOMO. And they say that this is the social anxiety of feeling like everybody is participating in something and getting to experience something and you don't. This is especially strong when you're young, when you feel like if I haven't watched every movie that everybody else has watched, then I've missed out. If I don't go out with my friends a fifth time this week, I might miss the most epic night ever. And the reason it's become so popular now as a catchphrase is because social media has greatly accelerated this concept. But you can see it also in spiritual things. I know I ought to come to Jesus. But what if I come to Jesus and I don't get the chance to, and you can fill in the blank with whatever fun you can think of. But I'm here to tell you, whether this is you or someone you love, maybe you just need to be reminded. The idea that sin will satisfy you or that you will ever come to the end of sinful behavior and say, all right, I'm satisfied and I've had enough. It's a lie. You will never be satisfied with sin. Our title tonight is Sin Cannot Satisfy You. The only time someone has had enough of sin is when they crash and they say, I've done things that I never expected to do, so I'm going to run to Jesus. But that's not what we think is going to happen. We think I'll finally have one more party and I'll finally say, well, I think I've had enough parties in my life now. That's not what will happen. 
It's a lie. You'll spend the rest of your life chasing after that. And in the process of chasing after that worldly pleasure, you will forfeit your soul and you'll lose everything else. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, we traditionally have translated that lose his soul, and that's, that's a fine translation. But I love how this newer translation brings out the concept that you're not losing it by accident. You're giving it away on purpose. That's what happens when you chase after worldly pleasure. You are giving up your eternal soul. So for every sympathetic American citizen that defends the church because they're a patriotic, red-blooded American... For every wayward church kid that has every intention to eventually get around to coming back to church. For every father who insists that his wife takes his children to church on Sunday morning while he sleeps in and then wakes up and watches the pregame. I'm here to tell you that only Jesus can satisfy you. And today needs to be your day of salvation. If you've been putting it off and saying someday, today is that day. And the Holy Spirit sent me here to tell you that. But the first thing we need to do is we need to prove my initial premise here, which is that sin cannot satisfy. I've got to debunk that lie. So we're going to start with this. We're going to start by saying sin did not satisfy you in the past. You may disagree with that. You may say, mm, I don't know. I remember those days and they were good days. I'm not saying I want to go back, but I, so far sin's been pretty good to me. I'm going to insist that if you can't be honest with your friends or on Instagram, can you at least be honest with yourself and with God? In your attempts to find satisfaction, I'm not just talking about a good time. I'm talking about to feel like you're really living life. In your attempts to find that through drunkenness and debauchery, how's that working for you? In your attempts to find satisfaction in life through sex or through romance, How's that working for you? After all the money that you've chased and all the achievements that you've made, have they ever succeeded in satisfying your soul? And if they have, then why are you still chasing after them? Why do you feel the need to find more? Now, you might initially say, well, yes, of course, these things are gratifying. They feel really good. Getting loaded and partying with my friends and going to the show is a fun thing to do. I really enjoy that. So, so much for your ideas, pastor. I don't think that you're correct about that. Here's what I think you're experiencing in reality. What you're experiencing is not memories of, of all the wonderful satisfaction that sin brought you. What you're feeling is nostalgia. You're looking back on the past with rose-colored glasses and remembering the good old days as better than they actually were. The children of Israel did this in Numbers chapter 11. They had been delivered miraculously out of Egypt, out of slavery, delivered through the Red Sea, provided for miraculously in the desert, but the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and this is really what we're talking about tonight, isn't it? I don't want to follow Jesus because I have cravings that I want to satisfy. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, 
the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Have you ever heard a more ungrateful person in your life? Remember we could just fish and it didn't cost us anything? Yeah, you didn't get paid either because you were a slave, remember? We had all kinds of herbs and spices and in our shelves and in our pantries. It's like, yeah, because that's what you could scrounge from the sand after you were done working and making bricks in the field. And we look at that and we say, how in the world can you look back and say, that was better? But don't we do the same thing? We have such a hard time living in the present because we're always worrying about tomorrow and we're always pining for yesterday. And do you know why you'd rather be in yesterday than today? Because yesterday's problems are already solved. You already know what's going to happen. You already know that, all right, we did get drunk and break the law, but we didn't get caught. And if we did, we're out now. So you can look back at it and say, oh, those were great times. You don't remember any of the stress of those days, the fear of those days. You weren't satisfied then. You were constantly chasing something else. We pine for high school, most of us. Ah, oh, those were the good old days. But we never forget the fact that you had to write papers and take tests. You had teenage hormones that made every little slight feel like the biggest deal in the world. You had teachers that hated you and coaches that were mean. You had to listen to your parents and obey curfew. But that's not what you're nostalgic for. You're nostalgic for the good times with your friends. It's the same thing with sin. We get this nostalgic view of the past and say, it was good because of the sin, but that's not true. You're not remembering any of the hangovers. You're not remembering any of the heartaches. You're not remembering that immediate emptiness that came upon you when the sexual experience was over. You're not remembering the fact that you finally got that raise and that achievement, and the next day you were just as miserable as you were the day before. It's one thing to be grateful for the past, and you should be grateful for the past, but let's at least admit that we were not satisfied in the past. Romans 6.21 says, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sin did not satisfy you in the past. Don't deny it. If times were good in the past, sin was not the reason for it. Because there's all kinds of good mixed in there. Being with people you love is a good thing. Celebrating is a good thing. Even sexual relations is a good thing. That's good. And that is what we can remember fondly. But it's not the sin that made it good. The sin made it worse. The sin ruined it. So let's, let's move on and talk about that a little more. The second thing is that sin is not now satisfying you in the present. This is much easier to admit than the past. Can you say, if you are one of those people that says, I don't want to come to Jesus yet because I'm having my fun. Are you actually having all that fun that you talk about so much? Really, are you? And if you're a believer in here and you're tempted to go after some of these other things, do you really, how, isn't it like the worst experience of your life when you give in to temptation and sin and then it's all over? Do your sexual experiences leave you happy when you're walking in sexual immorality? When you go out and you party and you get drunk and you get high, aren't you glad that you did that the next day? <laughs> have you ever looked at your bank balance and said, wow, I think I finally have enough money? Have you ever gotten into a relationship and it's just everything you've ever dreamed all the time? 
Of course not. This is why we're laughing, isn't it? Because we know. And again, I would never suggest that sin is not pleasurable. It is, or it wouldn't be a temptation for us. But it is empty, hollow pleasure at best. It's like when you get a bag of chips and it feels all big and full and you open it up and like 90% of it's air. And you're like, this is all I paid for? That's what sin does. It rips you off. Consider David. David had everything. He was king. He had an army that followed him, a nation that loved him. He had wives and concubines. What's the point? He was sexually satisfied. But what did he do? He goes on top of his roof and he starts to look. And he sees the one woman that he can't have. And now that's the one that he needs. And of course, you know the story. He brings her into his chamber and commits what you might call a form of royal statutory rape. It was what was done at the time, but it certainly was not what the Lord wanted for him. And he has to have his friend killed to cover it up. So when Nathan comes to David and tells the story, hey, there was a man that had a lot of sheep and he killed his neighbor's sheep. What should we do? And David's like, he must be punished. And Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. So why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The Lord says, David, I gave you everything. I gave you everything a man could possibly want. You had a couple hundred wives and a couple hundred concubines. And you had to go for the one that your friend was married to? That's what sin does. When you're trying to satisfy yourself through the flesh and through sinful passion, you will never be satisfied. You'll always need another one. You know how you know if you've been doing something in the flesh, meaning in your sinful nature or not? By how hollow you feel immediately afterwards. When you do something good and you're done, don't you feel good about yourself? When you go to the gym and suffer through it, you get in the car and you're sweaty and you're sore, but you get home and you go, okay, I did it. I really finally did it today. But how do you feel when you've got your gym bag in the back of the car and you're on your way and you said, you know what? Instead, I'm going to McDonald's today. <laughs> oh, it feels good in the moment, but as soon as it's done, what do you say? Why did I do that? Because it's the flesh and it's the same thing with sin. You can tell because you're hollow. You're believing the lie that the diluted pleasure of sin is greater than the wholesome pleasure God will give you. Satan tells you, yes, you'll be happy with Jesus, but you won't be able to have that strong, immediate, passionate joy that I can give you. And then you get it and it's no good. It's a ripoff. You know that that's what your life is like. This is why you're constantly looking for the next one. This is why people who say, well, when I've had my fun, I'll come to Jesus. They never come to Jesus because they're never ever going to feel like they've had enough. They're still chasing it. And meanwhile, people will come to you and say things like, man, I wish you had your life. Look how great it is. And you go, really? You, you don't know how miserable I am. Yes, I've carefully curated everything you see online so that it looks great. But here I am at home feeling miserable and wondering what the purpose of all of it is. And you keep telling yourself, 
I've just got to keep trying. But Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, Solomon does not pull any punches in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. That's life. The eye and the ear are not satisfied. Sin is not satisfying you now, but I know that you in your heart are trying to close me off from that because you are under immense pressure to act as though it does because that's what everyone else is doing. That's what TV says. That's what the movies say. That's what social media says. That's what everything is saying. The music thumping in your radio is telling you about how great it is to go out and get loaded on a Friday night. And then you do it and it's loud and it's sticky and it's uncomfortable and you're not really having that much fun, but you kind of want to. Maybe I just need another drink so I can get a little more loose. And then the next morning you're vomiting and you're feeling sick and you got to call into work and you did things you regret and you called somebody that you said you're never going to call again. But the radio comes on and we're going to do it again next week and you go yeah because you're convinced that there's something in it so when someone comes to you and says that's not even exciting and fun for you you have to act like it does because you've committed your whole soul to that course of action i'm calling you to have enough humility to admit that sin is not satisfying you now just like it didn't satisfy you then and i think you know where i'm going with our third thing here sin will not satisfy you in the future it's time to let go of that hope. It's never going to happen. It's never happened for anybody. There is no amount of money. There is no high. There is no achievement. There is no sexual climax or good time that will give you that sense of belonging and purpose and joy that you're looking for. It's not out there. It doesn't exist. But you say, well, but other people have gotten there. I'm going to tell you a secret. They haven't. They haven't. They're just as desperate as you. And in fact, those who have more than you, who do more of this than you, do that more because they think, well, it's just the amount. I have everything, but I'm still not satisfied, so I've got to do more. And they have the resources and the money and the time to do it. And a lot of those people, little side note here, have a financial interest in you believing that lie because they're trying to sell alcohol. They're trying to sell t-shirts. They're trying to sell CDs. They're trying to sell TV shows. It hasn't satisfied anybody. There's a man in the Bible that tried it. Luke 15, Jesus told us the story of the prodigal son. It says, many days later, the younger son, after having taken his inheritance early, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. YOLO, right? No one says that anymore, but you get the idea. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. That's where pleasure seeking gets you. You think I just got to spend one more dollar. I got to spend one more hour at the office. I got to chase one more woman. I got to seduce one more man. And then I'll finally be satisfied. No, you won't. You'll crash. You'll wreck your life. You'll become a sin addict in addition to maybe any number of other kinds of addicts. 
You become like other addicts do. You're numb. You don't really feel it anymore. You don't really get excited like you did the first time you went to the rave and you saw the lights and you heard the thump and bass. You just kind of show up and it's, well, it's another one of these. And it just becomes boring to you. You become wild because you are numb. And so you've got to do more, more, more to get back to that same place you were before. You get defensive whenever somebody tries to question you. Because again, you've sunk everything into this. And it feels like it's part of you. So when somebody criticizes this, it feels like they're criticizing you. And you get sick and tired. In your most honest moments, you go, I've got to stop doing this. How long are we going to keep this up? How long are we going to keep living like this? And yet, you cannot or you will not stop. That false hope that one day I'm going to catch it. I'm finally going to reach out and grab hold of satisfaction. Oh, that's all right. That's enough. Now I can say that I've lived it up and I can go settle down with Jesus. No, that false hope will string you along your whole life. And you'll be chasing new toys and new pleasures, thinking that the next one will satisfy, or maybe then one after the next one, because everybody else seems to be doing it, and they wouldn't all be trying it if there wasn't something to it. But Solomon again, Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That word vanity that he uses in the book of Ecclesiastes it's, it's related to the word for wind or breath. You know what it says that man's life is but a, a vapor? It's the same root word. He's not so much saying that there's no point to life. He's saying if you live your life that way, chasing after money, it's like, that's all that it is. It's like grass. What does he say? Grasping for the wind. You're not going to catch it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves sex will not be satisfied with sex. He who loves power will not be satisfied with power. She who loves romance will not be satisfied with romance. Sin will never satisfy you. It will leave you desperate, bitter. You'll be bitter and angry at the world because you feel like the world promised you that this would be everything they promised and it didn't measure up. And on top of all that, you'll be lost forever. You'll forfeit your soul unsatisfied. Sin has not, does not, and will not satisfy. Trying to chase carnal, worldly pleasure, doing the things you know you're not supposed to because you want to you wanna do them while you're young or you want to get it out of your system and sow your wild oats, it will not satisfy. You'll never get enough. And you are not the exception. You are just like everybody else. You're just as broken, and everybody has the same thought in their mind. We love to laugh about this. Oh, money don't, won't make you happy. Well, give me some, and I'll give it a try. Okay, it won't make you happy. I heard recently somebody say, money is an intensifier of who you already are. You'll be just like you were before. You'll just be more of it. And the reason that sin does not satisfy so you say, okay, I kind of get this. Everything you're saying makes sense and it sounds like good wisdom. But sin feels so good in the moment. So why can something that feels so good be so hollow and so empty? Like a chocolate Easter bunny that turns out is a hollow chocolate Easter bunny. Because sinful pleasure is a corruption of pleasure. The enemy convinces us 
that the pleasure that Jesus has for us is a lesser version of pleasure. The opposite of that is true. By definition, sin is the ultimate anti. Drunkenness is anti-celebration. It's got a piece of it, but it's the diluted, watered-down version. Sexual morality is the anti-marriage because its joy is less and its power is less and its security and safety is less. Pride is the anti-honor. I'm going to finally make something myself and everybody will bow down to me as opposed to somebody that everybody bows down to even though they have nothing. The pleasures that God gives you are, is the uncut stuff. It's the real deal. It's the concentrated dose. And sin can only dilute that down. It can only remind you. Why is sin pleasurable? Because it reminds you of something that is wholesome. It reminds you of something that is good. And your soul wants that. It's like when you, let's say you've been out playing basketball all day and you're worn out and you go to the fridge and you grab a Pepsi and you drink it. It feels good. It's nice and cold on your throat. But immediately after it's over, you feel worse. Because yes, you were getting liquid, but it's not the good stuff. You need water. That's the undiluted 100% H2O that will not only give you the same cold, refreshing feeling, but it will restore everything that you sweat out. That's what sin is like. It's like trying to drink a sugary, carbonated beverage after exerting yourself when you need water. It's a desire that God wants to satisfy, but Satan has tricked us. Sinful passion is the desire for something that the devil says God can't give us. That was the first lie. God's holding out on you, Eve. Yes, you're great. You're made in the image of God, and the whole world is yours to rule and reign over. But did you know that if you eat the one thing you're not allowed to eat, you'll become a goddess? Adam, you'll become a god yourself. And then they ate it. And how did it work out? Oh, I'm sure the fruit tasted good. Everything God made in the garden was good. But it broke the world. And that's why God drove us out of paradise. The pursuit of sin precluded them from experiencing the greater joy of the Garden of Eden, of paradise. So yes, you can have your sinful pleasure, but you're now cut off from paradise. Psalm 1611 says, Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is life positive. We've talked about this. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. He's not holding back. He's not keeping something from you. That's a lie. It's the first lie, and we still believe it. So you really going to tell me that being a Christian and believing in Jesus is going to satisfy me more than all of this wonderful, exciting, flashing light, brilliant sin that I've been engaging in? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. To say nothing of the fact that evangelical Christians consistently score as the happiest, least stressed, and most satisfied with their lives, marriages, and occupations of anybody that's ever been tested. Second place is Orthodox Jews, by the way. So there's that. But they're boring. You're thinking about it wrong. Let's walk back through what I just said a minute. Jesus can redeem your past. 
We say, oh, we're going we're gonna to try to capture what we had back then. We've already said it really wasn't that great. You're only remembering the good stuff. But the past can also be like a ghost, can't it? It haunts you. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to remember it. Maybe that's why you get drunk. Because the more you think about it, the more you freak out. But Jesus can take your past, even with all of its horrible memories and all the terrible things that were done to you and done by you, and he turns it into something that will bless you and bless other people. He's not trying to try to get you to forget your past. He wants to bring it all to your memory and restore it into something positive. How can you say that? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to bear the penalty for all the stuff you did in the past. When you think about it, you know, I'm going to have to pay for that one day. We even say that in the minute moment, don't we sometimes? Oh, I'm going to pay for that one later. Yeah, you will. But Jesus can pay the price for you. And he rose on the third day. So first he went into the tomb. That's, that's the death of the old life. But coming out is the newness of life. That the past has no power over you anymore. And Paul likens it to the pains of childbirth. He says they're miserable in the moment, but the woman barely remembers them when it's over because of the joy of the child in her arms. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14. Paul wrote, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's the past. Dead. God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He took the highlight reel of your old life, all the things that haunt you when you're trying to go to sleep, and he took them and he nailed them to the cross. And when the blood of Jesus ran down, it wiped out all of that. The guilt and the shame of your past have been crucified with Christ. All of the things that you would rather forget have actually been forgotten. Amen. And not by you, but by the one who was going to judge you for it. As Christians, we don't have to chase the past. We're not like Uncle Rico, right, back in 82. Oh, we laugh about that, but we know those people, don't we? It's like, all right, yep, I'm, I'm sure you were, you were quite something. And if it wasn't for your trick knee, you would be in the NFL right now. That's, that's, that's right. Or maybe it's not even that, just back in the day. You know how beautiful I was back in the day? Have you seen the pictures of when I was younger? Same thing, right? Oh, man, when I was in school, everybody loved me. You ever know that creepy guy that had graduated high school and yet kept coming back to hang out with the high schoolers? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Now, when you're 14, you're like, oh, I get to hang out with the big kid. And then when you're a senior, you're like, what is your problem? <laughs> you're kind of creepy that you're coming back to do this. And most of the time, they're not trying to be creepy. They're just trying to hold on to something that they thought was great to the point where it starts to hurt them. As Christians, we don't chase the past, but nor do we flee the past. The devil comes and throws it in our face and we say, yeah, but you know what's so wonderful about that? It doesn't mean anything anymore because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. In Christ Jesus, murderers and liars and terrorists have found rest. Their consciences can sleep now because of Jesus. So how much more you and all that you've done? You're trying to hold on to what little pleasure you can pick out of your past. How about Jesus says, would you like me to turn this entire experience into a positive one for you? Would you like everything you've been through to mean something? 
That's what Jesus can offer you. Not only that, Jesus can invigorate your present. Your right now becomes one of joy and peace and love and all of that stress of trying to make sure that every moment we're happy and we're, we're wonderful and everything's fun, everything's great. You just let that go because I'm finally satisfied. Jesus Christ not only rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to come and fill you up with power for a new life. And every day is a new adventure because you have God living within you, regenerating and empowering your life and giving you new purpose and giving you new reasons to live. I find it so ironic. There was a certain musician I was listening to one time and there was one song on the, on the album that really struck me because it was so honest and it was so really had a lot of wisdom to it about this whole life that we're doing, this whole scene that we're part of, it's just, it's empty and it's vapid and it's not making me happy. And we're just trying to cover up the fact that we're so miserable. And then the very next song is another one of those party anthems to get everybody excited and go back and do it all again. Because there's nowhere to turn. There's no purpose other than this. But in Christ Jesus, we can acknowledge all of that and say, but you know what? I have purpose now. I know the meaning of life now. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit, meaning if the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you and you are compared to a tree, here's the fruit that's going to grow on your life tree if the Spirit's living in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the last part of the verse says, against such things there is no law. Now Paul there is talking about the law of Moses, but there's a broader thing to be learned from that. You get to enjoy all of these wonderful things without any guilt or shame attached to it because you're not breaking God's law. You no longer have the pressure to make every moment feel good because you have peace, you have joy, and even when you are buffeted, and even when you suffer in life, even when you're grieving, you can rise and praise the Lord and bless His name. When you're chasing that high, when you're chasing that accomplishment and that prize or that person, at a very deep-rooted sense, you're chasing after God. You might want the thing, but you want the thing for what it will do for your soul. This is why people burn through seven or eight marriages, because they think the next person will finally make me feel complete. They won't. They can't. It's unfair to put that on them. Only Jesus can do that for you. It's been said a million times, but it's so true. There's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. He satisfies your soul with good things, and you don't need that pleasure anymore. The amazing thing about becoming a Christian, and I've seen it over and over again, is you don't have to teach new Christians, don't do that stuff. They don't want to anymore. Partly because they're learning and they're reading the scripture, but partly because the reason they were doing those things in the first place is they were so hollow and so empty, they needed to fill their life with something, and now that it's filled with Jesus, what do I need that for? I've graduated. I'm not going back to high school. <laughs> In Jesus, life becomes yours to enjoy because you finally receive that concentrated dose of delight that only Jesus can give. 
And our third thing here, Jesus can ensure your future. Your final destination becomes a matter of hope, not fear, not worry, not trepidation, not sitting up at night wondering what's going to happen when we die. Do we just extinguish? Do we just go out like a light? No, you know. Christians die well, don't they? I mean, just look at us. Not even just martyrs here. I'm talking about Christians that have walked with Jesus their whole life, come to the end, the the disease is finally going to claim them, and they die with a smile on their face and a blessing for their family. And we get together and we celebrate their life like nobody else. I know you've been to a, a funeral for somebody that did not know Jesus. It's grief without hope. It's grief and grief alone. But when we come together and we remember a Christian who died, we say, They just fell asleep, and they're going to wake up again. Jesus Christ promised that he would return to take us home to be with him. He said he could come back at any time, even before I finish this tonight. And if we should die before that day comes, then we will be in heaven with him right away. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's why Christians can laugh in the face of danger and be calm in the face of death and walk into the arena with the wild beasts and the gladiators singing hymns and preaching to the crowd even as they're torn to pieces because they know what comes next. You can't buy that. Because Christ is risen, you are guaranteed So all you have is the testimony? Well, don't just count that out. I have a 2,000-year-old testimony that has been preserved and maintained across continents, throughout generations and languages and cultures, and I'm still testifying that Jesus rose from the dead. But don't those of you who have believed, don't you just find new proof every day that Jesus is exactly who he said he was? Well, you're all deluded. I don't think so, brother. Only Jesus can give you hope like that. And I'm not promising you pie in the sky by and by. That's what the devil offers you. If if you do this long enough, eventually you'll, you'll feel great about your life. Eventually the guilt will stop. Eventually you'll have enough. Eventually you'll have a high that is so great that you'll just be able to take a breath and say, wow, that, that really was made my life worthwhile. That's what the devil does. I'm offering you, in Jesus, an ever-increasing capacity to enjoy your existence. That's what Jesus offers. Every day, your capacity to hold joy and hold peace and hold happiness gets a little bigger. And not only that, that when you die, it doesn't stop. It increases. It goes faster. You're going to spend the rest of eternity delighting in the Lord Jesus. As the old catechism said, enjoying God forever. You think heaven's going to be boring? This world isn't boring. And it's full of sin and corrupted with terrible people. We're not going to be bored in heaven. You're going to be spending the rest of eternity living a life without any of its corruption. In Jesus, even your suffering serves a purpose to prepare you for inexpressible bliss forever in the presence of God. So we need to stop believing the lie. The lie that sin can satisfy you. The lie that, yes, I know, I've got to come and follow Jesus because that's what's right, but there's a lot of stuff I want to do first. And once I've got my fill, I'll come to Jesus. You'll never get your fill. That's the lie. I want to end with this verse here. These verses. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'm going to read them one at a time. 
The apostle wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. You need to be reminded, sinful pleasure is enmity with God. You make yourself an enemy of God when the purpose of your life is to live in the world like everyone else. Do not think that you can just come back whenever you want. You have no guarantee that your heart will not be so hardened and anesthetized to the voice of the Spirit that you won't even be able to hear Him when He calls you. We see it every day where the Lord gives people over to their iniquity. It's not just, well, Jesus will understand. He'll forgive you, but we do not continue in sin so that grace may abound. John continues, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. I mean, when he puts it like that, that everything in the world is, he says desires, but it's the word lust, meaning that, that carnal, base, animalistic desire of your flesh, wanting to feel good, desire of the eyes, wanting to have stuff, pride of life, wanting everybody to think you're great. When you lay it out like that, those things are so base, aren't they? They're so adolescent. And very often we set ourselves on a trajectory through life as an adolescent and don't even question it until we're like 50 years old. Are you not better than all of that? Don't you want more than that out of life? Well, I'm looking for it. You found it if you're here tonight. And then verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides, which means remains forever. Everything that you're chasing, if it's sinful pleasure, if it's carnality, it will pass away, including you. You will pass away. Come on, you can't live life thinking about death. You better, because you don't know how close you are to the end of your timeline. You don't know what the last year on your tombstone is going to be. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. You don't know. Well, I'm healthy and I drive safe. Your life is not in your own hands. But whatever is in Jesus Christ is eternal. I'm not afraid to die. I might be afraid in the moment. I don't think it would be fun to drown or to get hit by a car or to waste away from a disease. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not afraid of what comes next. Because I know what comes next. How can you know? That's faith. And I think my faith is not blind because my faith has only ever served me well and only ever taken me to places I want to be and only made me a better man anyway. So that even if I were to die and find out that it wasn't true, I'll have no regrets because I lived every moment to the fullest and became the kind of person I can be proud of. So today's got to be your day. You might say, why are we preaching the gospel, an evangelistic message, to a room full of Christians. Because you never know who's hiding. Hiding in the congregation. You never know who's faking it in the congregation. You never know who's slipping, being tempted by these things. And you never know who's going to walk through that door. At the very least, we will all have been reminded that the things that the devil dangles in front of us are not worth it. If somebody were to come up to you now and take your keys and dangle them in front of your face and say, ooh, look. You'd look at them kind of funny, wouldn't you? What? You used to love that when I was an infant. <laughs> but I've grown up now. That's what Satan's doing. 
He's trying to convince you to keep chasing after the jangly car keys. This time, this time it'll feel just the way you want it to. And you won't have any regrets after it's over. It's a lie. This has got to be your day. You've got to repent. What does that mean? It's not complicated. It means I'm going to renounce that way of living. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going after Jesus. And then you bow the knee and say, Christ is Lord and he's Lord of me. You ask for forgiveness and he will help you. And you'll start today. You'll be born again. This could be your birthday, your spiritual birthday when everything starts over. As if everything that happened before was just a bad dream. And I know when you know that you've got to do this and your heart is thumping in your chest and you're thinking, I've got to do this, but I don't want to because what the devil tells you is you're going to give up everything you love about life. Just think, you'll never be able to do that again. You'll never go to the club again. You'll never make all the money you want. You'll never have all the pleasure you want. You'll have to flush your drugs down the toilet. You, don't, you can't do that. That's who you are. No, it's not. You don't know who you are. Jesus can tell you who you are. He doesn't want to add a bunch of extra stuff to you and have you define yourself by all that. He wants to reach down into the muck, pull out who you really are, and say, now let's let this man live. That's what Jesus does. Joy is only to be found in the gospel until you are willing to give up the cotton candy. You're never going to be able to step back and enjoy the ribeye that Jesus has for you. And I'll tell you, the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. You ever make something for your family? You cook something and somebody, maybe one of your kids walks in and goes, What is that? You know, come on, try it. It's like, ah, ah, no thanks, it's okay. And you go, Just taste it and you'll see that it's good. I have to do this with my children. It's gonna, you're going to like it, I promise. Same thing with Jesus. But on a far greater, more important, more amazing scale. What if I don't like it? You will. You'll love it. Look how happy we are. Amen. This is why unbelievers hang out with Christians, because there's just something about them. It's not for me, but there's something about them. It can be for you. I've tasted and I've seen Anybody else want to say amen to that? Amen. I have found that supreme satisfaction that you're craving and that you're chasing in all of these sinful ways, the thing that you're looking for so desperately, I have it. Amen. Just about everybody in this room has it. We've found it. It's not arrogance, but can you imagine if you found it, wouldn't you want to tell everybody? Join me. Join us at the foot of the cross. And your whole world, it will be like it changes from black and white to living color. You're gonna see things that you never thought you'd see. You're gonna have pleasures untainted by sin and corruption that you can enjoy to the fullest without a single regret, without any need to minimize it or manage it or be moderate about it. At the very least, you owe Jesus Christ your soul. He's died on the cross for you and he's welcoming you. But judgment is coming. And if you continue after these things, it's not going to go well for you. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
You don't have to. You can come to Jesus and you can have your soul saved and your life transformed tonight.